1: From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Amanda Milkovitz. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. It's a place that's hit a very big pandemic milestone. Rhode Island surpassed the president's goal of getting at least one vaccine dose into 70% of adults by July 4th. That's a merit less than half the country can claim. As of last Friday, Governor McKee said close to 77% of adult Rhode Islanders were either fully vaccinated or on their way. Looking forward, he says he'd like to see us get that number up to 90% by Labor Day. This week, I'm in for Ed Fitzpatrick. And for a very important reason, it's Shark Week. My guest is John Dodd. He's the executive director of the Atlantic Shark Institute. That's a Rhode Island-based organization that conducts shark research across our part of the ocean. Last month, the Shark Institute tagged their first ever great white shark in Rhode Island waters. And to their great surprise and delight, they tagged a second one just this week. I talked with Dodd about his decades-long passion for sharks, the important role they play in the health of the ocean, and what their behavior can tell us about climate change. My conversation with John Dodd of the Atlantic Shark Institute after a quick break. On June 12th, for the very first time in Rhode Island, fishermen at the Point Judith Harbor of Refuge placed an acoustic tag on a young great white shark. That tag will allow scientists to closely track where this shark goes, and for my guests, it was a highlight of the year. John Dodd is the executive director of the Atlantic Shark Institute, a research-based nonprofit in South Kingstown. The Atlantic Shark Institute works with leading researchers in the field to support shark conservation and management off the coast of New England and beyond, including tagging and tracking sharks in Rhode Island, or as we say at the Rhode Island Report, sharks. John, thanks for joining me today.
2: Delighted to be here.
1: Last year, the Atlantic Shark Institute detected nine different great white sharks in Rhode Island waters. This summer, you've already tagged the first great white here using the acoustic devices. So, tell me how this came about and why this type of tagging is important.
2: Well, uh, I think I would describe it as uh, preparation met opportunity uh, in this particular case because uh, we had been working with uh, a couple of uh, fish trap fishermen in Point Judith. They said that periodically they ran into great whites, and we were intrigued. So. I met with them. Uh we worked together on uh you know tags and tagging technologies and tagging methodologies, and uh in the hopes that a white shark would show up. And uh just so happened that on June twelfth a seven-foot female decided to chase fish into a fish trap in Point Judith, and uh they were ready, they had the technology, they had the training, and we were ready to go. So we were really excited when he called. I was elated. And uh, yeah, so we should be able to track her for the next 10 years or so and see where she goes and what she does.
1: And now why is the acoustic part of this so important?
2: Yeah, the acoustic part is important because uh, those particular tags will last 10 years. So uh, there's an acoustic array that goes from Maine and in in Canada, frankly, all the way down to Florida and the Gulf of Mexico. So what's really neat about it is as this shark swims... Uh, And if she gets within six to 800 yards of any of these receivers, she's going to get detected. So um, it could be next week. It could be next month. It could be five years from now. So what's neat is we're going to see her as she makes her seasonal migration up and down the East Coast and into the Gulf of Mexico uh, for a long time. And it's kind of neat because she's technically a juvenile. And as she gets older, we may find her doing things that she doesn't do today. So we're really interested to seeing what, what that's going to look like.
1: How long do they live?
2: Uh great whites, believe it or not, live to almost seventy years old. 70? So, seventy? 70 year old. Yeah. They can stick around for a long, long time, so it's kind of neat. You know, ten years seems like a long time, but in, in her life it might just be a snapshot of time, but that's okay. She'll
1: that's just a- be an adolescent.
2: Yes. Yeah. That's it.
1: So how old were you when you first came face to face with a with a shark? And and what is it about these creatures that really fascinates you?
2: Yeah, well, I guess there were two significant events. Once I was fishing with my dad on a wooden boat out of Stonington, Connecticut, and we taught a dogfish shark, which are very common, um, but it was a shark. Yeah, And uh, we were so excited. Of course, we had to bring it home, and then everyone from the neighborhood had to come by and see the shark. Um, (laughs) And, of course, you fish now, and you're trying to fish for cod or something, and they just won't stop coming by the boat, so you're annoyed by them today. Mm -hmm. That was my first significant event. But probably even more significant than that was when I was 14, we were in Stonington, coming around Stonington Point, going behind what they call, uh, you know, there's a little refuge there in this sandy point, and lo and behold, there was a shark fin on the surface, and it ended up being a 10-foot blue shark that we ended up... Uh, unfortunately, it was way in the shallows. It was not doing well. It was sick. Mm-hmm. It died. Uh, but that was front-page news and right around the time of Jaws. So it was a pretty significant event and kind of launched my interest. I guess pushed my interest into hyperdrive, I'd say.
1: So a lot of us who saw Jaws were terrified and didn't want to go in the water. And you saw Jaws and, and wanted to see as many sharks as you could. And you've made this your life. What is it about these creatures?
2: Oh, I've always thought they were beautiful. You know, there was a description I read once and darn if I can't find it, but said, if you took a block of wood, a huge block of wood, and you pushed it through the ocean for a million years, it would come out in the shape of a shark Hmm. because they are so hydrodynamic in shape and size and scope and absolutely just beautiful. And I've always been fascinated. I've wanted to see them and touch them and catch them and, and go to to watch people that were working on them. And it's just, it's been a lifelong pursuit of mine, first from a hobby perspective and now full-time with the Atlantic Shark Institute. So it's, for me, it's a little like fantasy baseball camp. Some people go to <laughs> baseball camp. some people, I, I do sharks.
1: So what do we really know about the health of the shark population in and around Rhode Island?
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's a mixed bag. I think it's like anything else. Um, you know, as I said earlier, the dogfish shark, they're plentiful. They're, 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 they're fine. Their numbers are sustained. Things are good. Uh, the mako shark, not so much, or frankly, not at all. Um, the mako shark is an iconic shark. We use it for our logo at the Atlantic Shark Institute just because of that. But to give you an example, this is a, this is a good one. The mako shark does not sexually mature, the female, until she's about 20 years old. Uh, That's about 600 pounds. So if you've ever seen sharks or been to a shark tournament, you will not see a 600-pound mako shark. They they are very, very rare. Mm -hmm. Well, to imagine that a mako shark is born, a pup, and has to survive in our ocean for 20 years and avoid fishermen and longliners and commercial fishing operations um, and larger sharks, and only then she has a 50% chance of being able to reproduce gives you a sense of the size of the problem that we're facing with some of these shark species. So that's why some of them are fine and some like the mako need some real help. Wow, so when we really talk about the health of sharks, we're really talking about the health of our oceans. One in the same, one in the same, because you look at sharks, shark health is ocean health. You know, there's a lot of examples uh, and studies that have been done that tell you that, you know, sharks in the ocean are a good thing. We know we're all afraid of them, right? In the sense that no one wants to go into the ocean and be bit or attacked by a shark. The good news is it's one, the odds are one in millions. But now, you know, ocean health, shark health, uh, the environment, they're all intertwined. and, And it's amazing sometimes to see how they're connected through points that you never imagined.
1: Yeah, you know, sharks are really a, a part of the whole broader marine ecosystem and the food chain. And um, what do you think their populations and behaviors telling us about climate change and how that's affecting the ocean?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I've seen that firsthand. As these waters are warming, right, and it doesn't have to be five degrees, it can be a degree or two. Many of these sharks, like blue sharks, iconic shark here in, in Rhode Island and, and off the coast. Well, you know, they cannot regulate their body temperature. You know, some sharks can, Mako can. Blue shark cannot. So the blue shark needs to be in water that it's comfortable being in. So what I've seen in the last three or four decades is these sharks used to reside in Rhode Island waters for the entire summer. And I'm seeing them still residing here, but in much smaller numbers. It's it's significant and it's a little disconcerting.
1: Tell me more about the appetite of the white sharks. I mean, do they they hunt together? Are they...
2: Typically, no. Typically, they're solitary. You know, a lot of the work that Greg Skolmull and his team are doing up in, in the Cape, he's on our research advisory board. He's a brilliant scientist. A lot of the work that they're doing is showing that there are certain sharks that like certain areas of the Cape. So they will patrol the same areas on a daily, weekly basis. There are other sharks that patrol others, and then there are others that seem to kind of... Go where they feel like going. But I think like everything else, if you, if you know fish or sharks well enough, there are areas they can become comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And if they know how and where and how you know, when to attack and they have certain areas that they like to do that, they'll keep doing it.
1: Now, speaking about Dr. Greg Skomel, and um, you went to the University of Rhode Island with him, the two of you are collaborating with the O.C.'s Conservation Foundation on a five-year research study of sharks from uh, southern New England to Montauk. Can you talk about that study and and how you're collaborating with the community?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, The O.C.'s Foundation is Dr. Craig O'Connell. You'll see him probably 15 times on Shark Week because he's, I think, on... I don't know half the shows, but anyway, um, yeah, there is a group of juvenile and young, they call them young of the year. Those are the newborns in the shark world. So Y O Y, young of the year, and juvenile white sharks. They tend to enjoy the southern side of Long Island, Montauk, kind of towards New Jersey. And uh, they like it there because they're safe there, you know. A great white is a great white, but if it's a four-foot great white, a eight-foot maker will happily eat that great white. Oh, okay. So basically they find themselves close to shore where they're safe, but also where there's abundance of food. Uh, you know, could be herring, could be mackerel, could be bunker. Um, so that part of our study is an important one because with even with Greg's 230 tags on Cape Cod, vast majority of those are sub and adults. So we're trying to figure out a lot more about what these juveniles and young of the year white sharks are doing. So our goal is to catch them, capture them, tissue sample them, blood sample them, and then fix them with tags that will allow us to follow them for five or 10 years.
1: Are you involving more fishermen with this study?
2: We are. We kind of carefully go through a process, and right now we have three well-known fishermen here in the state of Rhode Island that have a good reputation, that are good at catching sharks and are balanced about the resource. Um, And they're out there every day, you know, or or most days. So it's an important resource for us to work with. And uh, they're really good at what they do. And trying to get these tags into sharks that are important and part of this research is something that they're really good at.
1: Yeah. So you have something like you had on on June 12th where the fishermen are pulling it up and saying, let's tag this fish. Perfect example.
2: Mm -hmm. And these tags, you know, in that case, that tag is about a $400 tag. It'll last 10 years. We have tags that are $1,000 that you affix to the dorsal fin. Uh, and they'll last a couple of years. And every time that shark breaks the surface of the water, we'll know where he or she is. Wow. Um, and we have tags that are about $4,000 each. And those tags, we can you know basically program the pop-off in six months or a year or up to two years. And they will tell us everywhere that shark went.
1: That's just fascinating. I and mean, there's so mm. many interesting things that these sharks can do that we're just starting to learn about. And they're probably really important to the, the life cycle of the ocean. I mean, they, they, are they keeping other species in check
2: Critically, um, I'll give you a couple of really good examples. Here's one, uh, you know, a lot of times, of course, we see storms across the world and they destroy areas or they uproot all the vegetation, which is critical, right? So it rips it all up and now you've got a barren seafloor. Well, um, when you have sharks around, um, the grazers, as we call them, the fish that loves to eat that stuff, they are very careful because they don't want to turn into a meal themselves. So we find when there are sharks present, those environments come back very quickly. Uh, when there are not sharks present, and those grazers don't need to worry about someone over their shoulder. It takes a long, long time because every time something sprouts an inch, a, you know, one of these grazers shows up and nibbles it right down to the sand again. So it's just a small example of shark presence is really critical to our oceans, both current health and restorative health.
1: Well, John, you are the shark ambassador of Rhode Island, I have to say. Oh, well, thank you very much. (laughs) And you make it sound so fun and interesting. And I kind of want to come up close to a shark and see what it's all about. So how can people get involved depending on where they are?
2: Sure. Um, Well, there's a couple of things folks can do. Um, We work with, uh, you know, we're doing a BRUV study, a baited remote underwater video system. We actually video sharks. The biggest thing we need, frankly, are people that have boats that want to participate in this research. A huge expense for these researchers is getting out on the water. So for us, we call them, you know, our research volunteers, but it could be people that own a boat that enjoy the ocean, enjoy nature, and want to give back. And for that, you know, we'll buy the bait, we buy the chum, we supply the researcher, we put them on the boat, we give them a sweatshirt, we put them on our website and thank them, and then he get to learn all about this research.
1: So how can we learn more about the Atlantic Shark Institute?
2: Yeah, there are, there's uh, several things that we try to do to keep people informed. We have our website, which is atlanticsharkinstitute.org. And folks can go on that and learn about all the different research projects we're working on. They can learn about our research advisory board. And also we have a Facebook presence um, and an Instagram presence. And uh, people will also communicate with us via email and other methods that they find convenient.
1: John Dodd, Executive Director of the Atlantic Shark Institute. John, thanks for joining me today.
2: Oh, my pleasure.
1: Here are a few other stories you should check out this week from Globe, Rhode Island. We're bringing you ongoing coverage of Rise of the Moors, a group based in Pawtucket that had members arrested in Massachusetts over the weekend. The arrest followed an hours-long standoff with police, who say the 10 men and one teenage boy were heavily armed. You can also check out the story by my colleague Alexa Gagos, who spoke with the organizers of Food Recovery for Rhode Island. It's a new program from URI Cooperative Extension that aims to decrease food waste through community education. And... Read Ed Fitzpatrick's coverage of the final days of the state legislative session, which closed out with a new budget late last week. Find all these stories and more at globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Ned Porter, and our music is by APM. Got a tip? Have someone you think we should talk to? We'd love to hear your ideas. Send us an email at ri.news@globe.com. And if you like the show, do us a favor, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Amanda Melkiewicz. Talk to you later.